You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Fighting soldiers from the sky. Fearless men who jump and die. Men who mean just what they say. The brave men of the Green Beret. Silver wings upon their chest. These are men. America's best 100 men will test today Hello and welcome to episode 2 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the 1980s Marvel Comics series The Nom. I'm your host Tom Panneries. This time around I'll be taking a look at issue 2 of the series which in keeping with what was laid out in the letter column of the first issue fast forwards the timeline a month from February to March of 66. I realized I'd started us out in January of 66 at the beginning of the episode there but after a little more review I saw that while Ed Marks left home in January of 66 the main action of the book his joining his platoon in his first patrol actually took place in February. So I'll be going over the book and taking a little bit of a look at what was going on that month in terms of the history of the Vietnam War. Dust Off, the second issue of The Nam, is written by Doug Murray with pencils by Michael Golden and inks by Armando Gill. Phil Felix was both letterer and colorist, Larry Hama was the editor, and James Shooter was the editor-in-chief. The cover by Golden and Gill shows two soldiers as they fire a gun at an unseen enemy, a scene that we will see later in the book. The book was cover dated January 1987 and came out on October 7, 1986. We begin at 0250 on March 5th, 1966, and the jungle is dark and quiet. Albergo's complaining about how they spent two days trying to get the jump on Charlie and have wound up with absolutely nothing. Sarge tells him to shut up, lest he give a whip away, and Albergo sighs. The boys sit tight, waiting for something to approach. Then, something happens. They get the claymores ready to see a group of people approaching. Once they're in position, it's time to blow the mines and open fire, and they do so, mowing down a line of what looks like villagers and oxen, but are actually VC. In the firefight, one of the soldiers is injured, and Cacus is pissed off that he was left vulnerable to enemy fire. The VC pull back, and Sarge requests a duffed off and asks Albergo to clear an LZ. Albergo then takes Marks into the jungle, ties a detonation cord around a few trees, and knocks him down via explosives to get the area clear. With that, Sarge radios out and pops some smoke, or, well, in layman's terms, sends up some flares. The chopper arrives and lifts off the wounded. Caucus makes his way onto the chopper, and Sarge and the rest of the boys are left to walk home. When they arrive, Sarge sends the guys to sleep while he goes to see Top, who tells him he's sending Sarge and the boys out on another mission in about four hours, clearly as some sort of retribution for getting Specialist Cacus exposed to enemy fire while out in the field. The platoon heads to the motor pool, and the guys hop on top of a tank. They're in a convoy that's being led by a roller, which is supposed to take care of any mines before the tanks run over them. This happens to be one of the tanks, and suddenly there is an ambush. The convoy is pinned down, and they begin shooting at the enemy, who is finally scared off by fire from the tank. They saddle up again, and the rest of the ride proves to be pretty easy. 
Sarge tells the guys it's time to hit the club. First round's on him, and the guys head to the barracks to dump their stuff. Albergo heads off to the club, but Marx stays behind. Well, Marx doesn't so much stay behind as he just kind of passes out in his bed. Before hitting the club, Sarge stops by Top's office, but he's not there. It's obvious that Sarge is pissed off and spoiling for a fight, so as Sarge walks up out to go to the club, Rob calls Lieutenant Finelli for help. At the club, Top's enjoying a drink and a smoke while he's approached by Sarge, who says, Evening, Top. Let's you and me step outside and have a little talk. Top stares at him while taking a drag off his cigarette, and Lieutenant Finelli puts his hand on Sarge's shoulder and says, Hey, Sarge, you guys did a terrific job today. Buy your drink. Top gets up and leaves while Sarge glares and says, Sure, Lieutenant. Top and I can talk some other day. Some other day real soon. The real-time story structure for the series can be a little tough to get used to at first, but as we get a little further into these first issues, we'll, we actually will get pretty used to it. Plus, like I said last episode, you get the sense that a lot of the action these guys are seeing over the course of your average few weeks or month was, well, routine in a sense. And While the first issue was pure exposition, here we get a little bit of character development and some conflict established between different personalities. In fact, this is an issue while where there's a fair share of action definitely takes a back seat to the character moments. The second page of the issue is one of the first pages I ever saw of the series. It was reprinted in Les Daniels' Marvel, Five Fabulous Decades of the World's Greatest Comics um, book. It's a great use of silence, too. It's a great illustration of, well, boredom, to be honest. Uh, You've got one guy sleeping, one guy picking his nose. It shows that Murray is really going for realism. Um, it, it's colored very nicely and dark. It, it, it is a sort of quiet, quiet moment that he just lets happen for a page or so. Um, and then you have this ambush, and it's played straight. It's not crazy significant. It's resolved quickly. And you get the feeling that there's a rhythm to the book here, and Murray and Golden don't feel the need to go for like big moments every time because they're trying to get you used to the rhythm of the war. And Golden's artwork is still great. It can be cartoony at times, but he's very good with facial expressions and emotion in a way that so many artists aren't. It's especially great in the moments between Top and Sarge. Sarge is a huge white guy. He could have been played by, say, I don't know, Ernest Borgnine or, or I don't want to say Ed Asner, but like that sort of like big tough guy um because he's a gruff grizzled tough soldier and tops the big black guy with gold teeth who even on the comic page can look intimidating um i i've pictured him looking like being like a michael clark duncan or a or a force whitaker or a Irving rames but having the voice of sounding like something like when when paul winfield did that don king character on that episode of Simpsons, the simpsons when when homer becomes a boxer um you know somebody somebody like that the action here, by the way, establishes uh, tension and conflict between Sarge and Top that will play out over quite a number of issues, at least in the first year of the comic. And I think it's been well established that Top's more or less one of the villains of the story. I mean, if there's a villain, because there's not a villain in the sense that Doctor Doom's going to show up or anything. But Top's crooked. He clearly has no qualms about putting men's lives in danger to prove a point. And I think it's easy to catch that Top's, well, kind of a typical bully. He doesn't have any problem hiding behind his superior officers either, especially if it's going to save his, his hide. 
And now while I'm glad we get our fair share of other characters, I'm glad that we still see Albergo is showing Marks the ropes because he's also continuing to teach us about the everyday of the war. Clearing a landing zone or why the guys are riding on top of the tanks instead of inside of the tanks were explained well once again without it intruding too much on the story. Again, the particular ambush is paced well. Murray and Golden give us a silent page where we see the mine on the road and uh, we see it get missed by the roller and then run over by a tank which sparks that firefight. And just like in the beginning of the story, the ambush ends quickly, and Sarge is, well, none too happy. And I love, by the way, how he is just going to hes gonna deck top whenever he gets the chance. It's clear Sarge is one of the few top doesn't have wrapped around his finger. When I get back, I'm going to talk about the history and go through the letter column in the ads. Hey, Kiss Comics! Hey, Michael! Yeah? We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one. Why? Because we've moved. 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 We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do. We still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hey Kids Comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.libson.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? March 1966 continued the escalation of the United States' involvement in Vietnam as the government announced that it was going to commit more troops. Meanwhile, protest movements are gaining traction in both the U.S. and Vietnam. On March 26, there were nationwide protests held in America, and March 27, 20,000 Buddhists marched in demonstrations in South Vietnam against the policies of the military-run government. On March 29th, showed the Soviet Union weighing in on the war with Brezhnev telling the United States to get out of Vietnam around the same time he announced that relations with China were going sour, which is often referred to as the Sino-Soviet split. Also in that particular month, by the way, the Soviets send Luna 10 around the moon on March 31st, and Gemini 8, piloted by David Scott and Neil Armstrong, completes the very first docking in space. Our song this time around is The Ballad of the Green Berets by Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler. It's one of the few songs of the 1960s that is actually positive in regards to the Army and wound up spending five weeks at number one on the Billboard charts. It also wound up being the number one song for all of 1966. This was well contended by California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas. And this particular two-song rivalry is said to show how divisive the 60s were becoming at this point. I know that sounds odd because it's the Billboard charts, but, you know, art imitating life and things being reflected in popular culture, it actually kind of makes sense. You have the counterculture starting to seep into the popular culture, but you also have kind of the 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 remains of what had been a very conservative era up until this point of of the 1950s leading into the the 60s um and i i could imagine that there are things in pop culture in this time that reflect that growing conflict among the people in, in the united states um so so it's kind of good to see that it's also kind of good to see that the 60s which you know i'm only so familiar with it's almost like they gradually happen. There are things that, big events that happen, but what we come to refer to as the 60s takes a while to really take hold and to really cement the sort of image that it has. 
The incoming this month does not have a letter column. It actually uh, gives us an org chart, believe it or not. It says typical infantry company organization. Standard rifle company in Vietnam was set up as follows. Headquarters consisted of two officers, commander and executive officer, and ten men, first sergeant, supply sergeant, and assorted clerks. These rifle platoons consisting of one officer and about 41 enlisted men each one mortar platoon consisting of one officer and 25 enlisted men. Each rifle platoon at a platoon headquarters, one officer with two enlisted, and three rifle squads, 10 men each with M16s and M79s. Also one weapons squad, nine men with M16 rifles and two M60 machine guns, and one 9mm recoilless rifle, which almost always stay put at base. The mortar platoon had a headquarters of one officer and seven enlisted, and three mortar squads armed with one 81mm mortar M16 rifles and M79s. In reality, the mortars were almost always left at home. And the breakdown is that you have on top uh, the HQ, uh, where the commanding officer, exit officer, and first sergeant, and then you have the supply sergeant and the mess hall kind of on either side. And below them, you have the rifle platoon, two rifle platoons, all the headquarters of the rifle platoon and the mortar platoon. So it's kind of a, a breakdown of things. It's kind of cool to see that so that we know, because they use a lot of military terminology. They, they're trying to make it uh, very realistic. And we see, we get to see kind of how th- these things are laid out because you have a sergeant, you have a top sergeant, you have a lieutenant. Like, you know, where do these people fall in line? You know, who, how many officers are really there? And, you know, you know what, you know what works and in, in, in who works for whom and, and what have you. And I, and I really did appreciate the fact that that they put this in there. And, you know, granted, they had to put something in here in, in lieu of letters. We don't start to get letters in the letter column until issue three. But um, but again, it's this commitment to like teaching us about what was going on in the war, as well as entertaining us. And I think that that at least in these first. Um, 12 or, or so issues that we'll see. We get a lot of that, but we don't feel overwhelmed by it. I will say, it's tough to read a lot of these in a row. Um, doing, uh, you know, having, like I said, I've read a significant amount of the series already. I'm going back on a reread with this podcast, and I found that I can only kind of read one issue in one sitting because it gives me a chance to absorb it a little bit, and then I can go back and reread the next issue and then you know what have you and it's kind of it's kind of cool like that because there's the the writing is dense in the sense that a lot of you know comics from the 80s did tend to be dense at times you know there's a lot of dialogue there's a lot of scenes it's it's not one conversation um spread out over 22 pages mr bendis but but it it, it has it has its richness and you're dead definitely you were definitely getting your 75 cents 95 cents in Canada and 40p in the UK's worth as opposed to paying 399 or 299 and getting through it on the toilet and being like well all right you know and feeling that you had to keep buying the next issue because not because you wanted to but because you know the rest of the story was there the nom notes that are in there we've got Bangalore the Bangalore torpedo is developed during the Second World War. It's basically just a long pipe jam full of explosives. It's a detonation cord and electrical detonator were used to set it off. Its shapes makes an I- it ideal for pushing under or in front of obstructions, then blowing them out of the way. 
A claymore was a more recent development. Shaped charge of plastic explosive backed on one side by solid steel armor and the other by steel balls. Later, fianchettes? Flechettes? Flechettes. The the text on this comic book page is, is not coming in the clearest, so my apologies. And even flammable gel for a time, really, really nasty stuff. Claymores were used for defense or fixed positions as well as, as, and as major re- weapons and present ambushes. A dust-off is a helicopter pickup. A flechette is a dart-shaped piece of metal, hundreds or thousands of which were placed in claymores and artillery rounds for the express purpose of annihilating closely packed troops or, or, uh, or in loose cover. A uh, hooch was a slang term for a hut, house, or barracks, basically where you live. LZ, of course, is a landing zone. Medevac, evacuation for medical purposes. A milk run, another leftover from World War II. It meant there's a really easy mission, probably referring to how peaceful it is when the milkman makes his rounds. And that's when they send them on a, um, when they go back from uh, the ambush in the beginning of the issue, says, yeah, this is basically a milk run from here. Or was it at the end? Let's see. I should remember this. Oh yeah, it's after the after when they're when they're in the armory and then uh, the the tank runs over the mine and everything and they take care of that. Sarge uh, says, "All right, saddle up, let's hit it again." And then you hear the guys say, uh, "Be a milk run from here, man." Um, no sweat, di da. Phrase of American Vietnamese origin, commonly used to mean something easy to do. Pop some caps. Well, I think we all know what that is by now, having watched enough, you know, <laughs> that's made its way into our slang. But it is American Army slang for firing a rifle, as it sounds probably from the child who used the cap pistols and similar in actions and rounds. Rock and roll, in this instance, the use of the M16 at full automatic, basically, basically making it basically a small submachine gun. And, of course, shrapnel, uh, a word that we should know anyway, French word meaning the small pieces of metal that comes from explosives or mines. Literally any piece of metal other than a bullet that causes a wound. And the ads for this issue. That was Nom Notes. The ads, there are some repeats from last time around. We have a new laser tag with a futuristic sci-fi approach that is really silly. We have the same Gumby and Pokey Brocks ad, a D&D ad, a Yamaha ad. Oh, and we have, ooh, we have the Amazing Spider-Man in the Free the Captain Mystery. Flash, a final edition of the Daily Bugle, bears bad breakfast news. Captain Crunch captured by Sogmaster. Fate of Crunch power. Uncertain. Soggies may rule. While somewhere in Sogland. Yuck, no solid evidence here, but I expect the captain's nearby. Meanwhile, on a hill slop. Yikes, it's Spider-Man, Sogmaster. He, 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 he won't be bugging us for long. Oh no, will Spidey free the captain before it's too late? He might, and you can help him during the Free the Captain sweepstakes. Boxes of Captain Crunch cereal have exciting games, clues, and secret phone numbers to tell you how. If you do the captain, if you do free the captain, you can be one of the 10,000 winners to share one million dollars. <laughs> my giant fly splatter will finish this pest. Hmm, my spider sense tells me I better find Captain Crunch and spin on out of here fast, or breakfast will be doomed and I'll be sogged. It's... <laughs> uh, there's a hodgepodge ad. There's Escape from Tenopia. It's the ultimate challenge. You're on a desolate island somewhere... On the mysterious planet of Tenopia, there's danger all around you, man-eating spiders and weird half-human crogocides who hunt you every step of the way. You must escape, but how? 
So I guess it's a role-playing game. Yeah, book number one, Tenopi Island, and Trap in the Sea Kingdom. It's just uh, a lot of role-playing games ads, and I never got into role-playing games. Comic book convention ads, American comics ad. Bullpen Bulletins has Shooter covering his ass for not mentioning um, Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko on a 2020 segment uh, on Marvel's 25th anniversary. Um, he says, Look, Ma, National TV, Stan Lee and I appeared on ABC's 2020 a few weeks ago talking about Marvel's 25th anniversary. Thanks to Joe, producer Joe Pfefferling, interviewer Bob Brown, and the whole 2020 team, the segment was a magnificent tribute to Marvel. However, while we were very pleased with everything that was broadcast, we were very disappointed about what was left out, specifically every single mention we made of Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and the other great artists who co-created with Stan many of Marvel's greatest characters. We believe in credit, giving credit where credit is due, and we did, to, but to no avail. You don't have much control in your interview situations like that. First of all, you discuss primarily what the interviewer wants, and second, they typically film several hours of conversation, which they edit down into a few minutes. You have no say over what makes it in the air or what doesn't. So anyway, though we were basically delighted to see Marvel's 25th get it, getting much greater media coverage, we wish it had come out with a, a little differently, and we wanted you to know. Next month, some further thoughts on the media responsibility, morality, and the kinds of things you can learn from reading comics. Strive on, Jim Shooter. Uh, I guess... And and I actually found that that 2020 segment on YouTube, uh, and I know it has nothing to do with the story in the nom, but you know I know a lot of you guys uh, who listen to podcasts love the sort of comics history stuff, and uh, I do too. Um, so I'll put it in the show notes because it's fun to watch anyway. And that's about it uh, for this episode. Thank you very much. It's a little lot shorter than last time around. I'm sure within a few episodes I'll kind of find my footing as far as. Uh, the length of time and what have you. I, I am shooting for about a half an hour to 45 minutes uh, with with each of the single-issue uh, coverage episodes. And um, hopefully we'll be kind of on that pace with some special episodes going for about an hour, an hour and a half or so, depending on, on what I'm covering. But next time around, I'll be looking at the nom number three. I'll be taking a look at the ads and letters and just about everything we did this time and uh, so I'll see you in two weeks thanks again for listening men who fight by night and day courage take from the green you have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Last request Put silver wings On my son's chest Make him one Of America's best He'll be a man They'll test one day Have him win